Phil, how are you? How are you doing today? I'm great, David. How are you doing? So how is it on the other side of the world today? Uh, pretty nice pretty and warm. good, pretty good. Uh, pretty warm. And, uh, you know, in Israel here, we never, uh, we never really have a winter, even though we're approaching, uh, approaching the winter all over the world. So uh, uh, here it's pretty warm, like we're still going to the beach, so pretty good. So uh, how, how's it like to be on our first, uh, first ever episode uh, of our podcast? You know what? I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to hearing from our fantastic guest, yeah. uh, a very esteemed colleague within the industry. Yeah. I'm going to keep it a secret for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it a few more minutes, and then we'll introduce our uh, our fantastic uh, first guest. Yeah, before before we do that, what do you think about what's uh, what's happening at the moment with uh, with uh, Line Five pipeline? That's actually a really good, interesting, a really great, interesting infrastructure question. As we know, uh, the United States and Canada are interconnected uh, with a web of pipelines going back and forth. And really, our economies are so interconnected. And uh, of course, oil is the, uh, the, the lifeline, the lifeblood of most of our industry nowadays, including uh, automobiles, including manufacturing. And the conveyance of oil back and forth and the conveyance of pipelines back and forth across North America is really an important issue right through and through. Now, also, we have to remember that we have a lot of different means of conveying oil, and uh, it could be oil through pipelines, which is the preferred method. You have oil through rail, which uh, there was an unfortunate incident in Canada, in Quebec, actually, Lac Megantic. Uh, approximately five years ago, a oil train was sitting above this uh, small rural Quebec town, and uh, they parked it overnight. The brakes failed. Unfortunately, there was a fire in the wow. uh, in the local brakes wow, failed, wow, wow. and rain rolled down into the city and literally destroyed the entire downtown of a city. And that was oil by rail, and of course you have oil by truck, and that's also great exposure to risk. So when you're trucking oil from point A to point B, number one, it's very inefficient because it's very small, uh, you know, small capacity relatively to pipelines and uh, buried infrastructure. And B, it's in the public at all times. So it's susceptible to uh, traffic accidents and as well, just causing the issue of additional carbon in the atmosphere. The more trucks run, the more oil you need and so on and so forth. It's a, uh, a living circle. Yeah. What, what do you think is uh, gonna happen with, uh, with the treaty? Well, of course, uh, right now there's a dispute between Canada and uh, I believe a few states, Northern states in, uh, in the states regarding line five and Line five is actually a line which starts all the way in Alberta and goes all the way across, and then passes through uh, the north, uh, north, uh, the north in the plains of the United States, and then crosses up into Ontario. So it's a it is a feeder for Ontario for oil right through and through, and it also provides a lot of feed to the Gulf Coast. So it actually interconnects into different pipelines in the Gulf Coast, really providing that uh, that lifeline for Alberta to get its oil to the states and to refineries. So it's really a, an interesting aspect. Now, of course, these treaties have been set up to protect both the Americans and the Canadians, and hopefully will, they'll, live, they'll live up to the treaty or the Americans will live up to the treaty, and the Canadians will actually come to some sort of agreement with them to actually provide them the ease which they want for the assurances of actually keeping that pipeline safe. Now, our guest today is actually a, he'd be a, ba a man caught in between two allegiances. Because Sam is Canadian and also American, from what I understand. Is that correct, that, Sam? That is correct, yes. I have dual citizenship. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, about Sam. Yeah. so first thing I want to talk about, Sam, is number one, Sam, I understand congratulations are in order. You were elected to the Board of Governors of UESI. Is that yes, correct, Yes, thank you. Thank you, Ophir. Yeah, it's quite an honor to be there. Fantastic. And uh, Sam is actually a gentleman who really has a footprint in the utility industry, in the utility academia industry, or in the academia, and also in the trenchless aspect. So I've seen Sam many, many times at no-dig shows. I've seen him talk about many, many different topics. And uh, from what I recall, Sam, your alma mater is actually University of Waterloo. Yep, I went to Waterloo, and then I have a master's and a PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So, uh, 
Oh, my hometown is Waterloo. So, uh, <laughs> and as a Canadian gentleman, what do you think about the uh, Line Five dispute? Or now an American professor. So I don't know if you know that I was actually involved in Line Five, the Line Five study in two thousand eight. Really? Yeah, so I, uh, I I partnered with uh, so the state uh, appropriated some funding to uh, Michigan Tech University, and uh, I, I was part of their team. Uh, Michigan Tech and, and Michigan and Michigan State, several of the schools in the state, plus myself, uh, were involved in a, in, a, in a comprehensive study of Line 5 that we did for the governor back then. And, um, you know, part of what I looked at was, you know, consequences, right? If there was a, if there was a, a spill, what would happen? What were the consequences of that? And, and it, was, it was interesting. We did that study back in 2018. It's available publicly. You know, we had a public forum on that, and, and, and it's on the website there which should still be there, I'd imagine, uh, for, yeah, for uh, we, did, we did we did work with uh, with Enbridge. I mean, Enbridge is great. I mean, uh, we looked at their SCADA systems and, and what they were doing, and I think they're doing what's appropriate for that. And I and I agree with you, Ophir. Pipeline transportation is is the safest mode of moving product. And um, uh, you know, I have to, to, to look. There's a lot of naysayers that that don't want oil or natural gas. Uh, around there, and 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 I think that just turns into a bit of a political battle as well, too. I'm I'm also involved in the uh, Mariner East Two project, which is a, a natural, which is gas product, right, for uh, yeah. Sunoco Energy Transfer Partners, and uh, they do a lot of horizontal directional drilling on that project. And but but you know they have all kinds of uh, legal challenges. I mean, it's 350 miles of of uh, 16 and 20 inch pipeline going across the entire state of Pennsylvania. And um, I've testified at hearings, and, and it's just interesting sort of the, what the naysayers are saying. And a lot of it is misinformation about, you know, the, oh, it's, it's so dangerous, oh, our, our children are going to die, it's, you know, it's going to blow up and cause these problems. But it is way safer to be underground in, in any kind of infrastructure than above ground. Yeah. Now, Sam, I want to ask you a really in-depth question. I, I know this is going to catch you a little bit off guard, but... How did Sam Rathnam, a young man from uh, Windsor, sorry, Waterloo, Ontario, get to be a professor at the University of Arizona? Uh, it's actually an Arizona State University. Arizona State, excuse me. You know, an expert in trenchless, uh, in trenchless methods and means and really becoming the, uh, one of the foremost players in the trenchless world. Well, you know, my... After I graduated with my doctorate, I, I spent a year uh, as a visiting faculty member at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, which is a which is a wonderful experience. I mean, being part of that, uh, I'm very proud of. But um, after I did that, my first tenure track tenure tenure track job was at the University of Alberta, and of course, you know, Edmonton is a, is a big hotbed of the oil and gas yeah. industry, and and uh, I and, and that's kind of where I started the journey in trenchless, and in particularly horizontal directional drilling, and. I was a young guy. It was in my my kind of uh, late twenties, and um, kind of learned a lot from the industry, and and got involved uh, in in the trenchless society. And we formed a society in the in the western part of the U.S. and and I was part of that inaugural society. and And that's where you really start at the grassroots level, and and being at the grassroots level was was you really understand the needs of what's going on in your your area and eventually i got elected to the uh, national board of directors of the north american society for trenches technologies mm-hmm. and then I was on the board for six years and then i ascended to the international society where uh, i became a chair of the international society uh, from uh, uh, 19 or 2010 to 2013 and there you know you're overseeing trenches activities in in uh, 40 different countries with 28 different societies and so i really traveled a lot i spent uh, a lot of time on the road in various uh, countries seeing what's going on in the overall trenchless realm and that but but really it's uh it's it's really getting out there and and being involved uh, i mean uh, i think it's important to go to different shows uh, there's a lot of shows that 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 showcase a lot of our trenchless equipment, our utility equipment. And as an academic, uh, I feel that's really critical to be there and, and talk to the people on the ground. I mean, these are the ones that are doing the, the work. They're, they're on the ground doing this stuff, and I think it's, it's important to, uh, to be with them. And it, it's a learning process. You know, uh, I, I'm still learning a lot of things in, in trenchless, uh, and, and, and I hope to continue to do that in my career. 
Sam, do you have any other passion within engineering except for tarantulas? Because I know that you're the tarantulas professor and you you have a, a real ballywick in tarantulas, but do you have anything else that you've been working on or anything else you can talk about within your uh, within your realm of engineering? Well, I mean, in, in, in terms of uh, research and that, I mean, uh, I have a, a really big project with the National Science Foundation right now. And what the National Science Foundation wants uh, P- American PhD students, so we're talking American citizens or uh, green card holders, to really understand international, right? Because it is a it is a, a small world, and so in the realm of civil engineering, which is the, the it was it was for STEM, but my uh, my colleague uh, uh, Dr. David Brown and myself, we wrote a proposal that partnered with the American Society of Civil Engineers, and we wanted to talk about civil engineering students anywhere in in the United States. And so uh, basically the, the deal with this is that they would get to go in, 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 and spend a short time, so anywhere from a couple of weeks to a semester at another university doing research with those folks there and, and really understand um, how to do international type uh, arrangements. And so we've partnered with uh, universities in uh, uh, Sydney, Australia, Beijing, China, uh, Edmonton, Alberta. We actually have a couple of people there right now because it's a little easier now to go to Canada with this COVID situation. Um, We have one in Medellin, Colombia. We partnered with uh, Indian Institute of of Technology in in Chennai, India. we're in Stellenbosch in South Africa and in at Ben Gurion University. Oh wow! I was going to ask. I was going to. I was waiting so, for the. For the so those are seven seven countries and 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 all top universities in civil engineering in every one of these countries that we're in. And you know, unfortunately, with this COVID situation, I mean, the, the plan was to. To, to send all these cohorts out and, and each semester. And, and, you know, we've got delayed. I mean, it's still going to happen, and we're starting to do that as, as it goes away. But the beauty for myself is I get to travel to all these seven wonderful countries, and so, some I've been to before, but some like Israel I've never been to, and I've always wanted to visit Israel. So I think um, that will be yeah. part of that. So, so that type of research is, is more, you know, looking from the education perspective to see, you know, what are the, the new civil engineering uh students and, and, and people going to really take out of it and that. But trenchless pipelines, uh, are, you know, all, all those have been a really big part of what I do in research. I, I work with a lot of utilities and that's in, that's that's the big thing, right? And, and, and um, trying to make the processes better, taking the engineering part of trenchless and, and, and applying those types of things, answering those questions that are unanswered uh, that people have about how how does it work? I mean, trenches is relatively new, yet it's been around for a while, right? It's 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 not open yeah. cut, but it, uh, it th- that has been around forever. But but still, it's something that really uh, it, it, we're seeing it, and, and I've seen the perspective of it globally, which is which I'm very blessed to have been able to do yeah. that. Sam, I want to ask you a question in terms of risk within trenchless and utility. What, what do you think is the biggest risk? The trenchless. Oh, 100%. The biggest risk in trenchless is striking an existing utility. I mean, that that is, and I've seen too many of those. I, I get involved here in the U.S. on a lot of claims. So I'm the guy, if you hear of a gas explosion as a result of a utility, I'm the one that's actually in, typically involved in it. I have... Oh, I have over a dozen of them right now going on. And it, they're really sad situations because it's a contractor, a trenchless contractor, usually a horizontal directional driller, and they're installing a, a utility. Usually, you know, it's a telecom line or something typically, but it could be anything. And uh, they come across an existing uh, gas line, hit that gas line, and, and then, uh, you know, the result is not never good. Right. I've seen my share of, of deaths and, and injuries that are very serious injuries in that. And and so this whole mapping of the underground world and, and understanding where the utilities are are really critical because a, a, a small mistake. I, I mean, there's a situation I'm involved in right now where a contractor was, was, was putting in a telecom line and, and decided, you know, didn't want a pothole to identify this this uh, three-quarter inch service, hit it, blew up a uh, uh, a business and also blew up a, uh, a facility beside it that, that housed antique cars and that. And, and you know, you're looking at about $100 million in property damage over wow, wow, wow. two deaths, 25 injuries. Wow. <laughs> you know, there, there's one thing which I find in the, in the States 
and that, that every single law and every single best practice is written in blood. And uh, isn't there a way to change that to get a little bit more proactive? Because we know it's going to get there. Why does it take such a such a you know a right wing turn when you only actually have to suffer the consequences? In your opinion, why, why is that? Why is that our culture that you actually have to suffer consequences before we change things? Yeah, I mean it's really unfortunate. I mean it's like uh, you know if you don't if you haven't seen it or it's not on your mind, then you don't think about it, right? And and when you think about how much trenchless activities, utility activities are going on every single day, right? In in all over the world. I mean, I've seen it all over the world. It's not just here here in the U.S. But um, when you consider all of that, and, and in most cases, you're not going to have a hit. It's just when you do have a hit, and it can be very catastrophic. And and if it's a gas line, in particularly with the sparks, I mean, it's it's sad. I mean, I I could tell you stories of, you know, there was one recently I'm involved with that. Uh, you know, a, a woman sent her, her, her husband went to work, her two young kids went to school. She's sitting at home, contracted her to gas line in the neighborhood, and it seeped through the ground and it blew her, her place up. And of course, she died. I mean, I was there right after it happened. And, and wow. it's really sad to think about that, that, you know, and it, it, it worries me sometimes in that, that, you know, it, these contractors, I mean, it's written in law, right? There are laws, underground facility damage prevention laws that tell you when you're excavating or you're doing any kind of boring or any kind of activity. These are what you need to do when you come across utilities and, and that type of thing. And, and unfortunately, like the prudent contractors are going to do their job and they are. And that's, that's a lot. Most of them are. But you do have the odd cowboy contractor that just, you know, I just got to get the work done. I, I, I don't really have that much training and, and, and that. And that's really where we're at. We're, we've got to train these contractors uh, to do a better job, and and I was involved in this in in the the specifications here in Arizona for for directional drilling, and one of the things that you know we put in there and 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 they liked was that anybody who's going to do any directional drilling in in Arizona here or in the area that I'm in, which is the biggest part of Arizona, uh, they have to have had some certificate of training. It doesn't matter where they went. They just need to have had some certificate that shows that they've actually gone to some training related to, uh, to trenches, whether it's through NASTT or ASCE or any, any other, you know, body or Pat or, Pat or <laughs> anybody that they can go to any, anybody or, or training that I offer, you know, through the HD Academy uh, group. But I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I, I you know, we don't discriminate on that. We just want to make sure that that person has done something because every one of those training courses talks about utilities and it talks about the things that they do. Right. So, you know, I think it's really important. So I, I, I think it's real important. So, yeah. Uh, just looking at your, your history as well. Did you have any part in CAT? And that's the Center for Advanced and Trenches Technology out of the University of Waterloo. No, I haven't. I I, I did not have any anything to do with uh, with CAT. I mean, I've been around it, okay. you know, in the past, but um, uh, no, I, I mean, it was I, I I left Waterloo in 1989, so uh, okay. a long time. Okay, a little bit before. Yeah, so way before <laughs> CAT started, but I think it's wonderful. I think I think CAT, the Trenches Technology Center at Louisiana Tech. I mean, uh, those are you know really good places for, for good resources and, and, and training. And, and that's what it's about, right? Training the next generation of, of uh, utility and trenchless professionals. Sam, now your involvement with UESI, uh, you know, traditionally you were involved with NASP and now I've seen you on the board of governors of UESI. Are you trying to, are you trying to push more? Are you trying to direct more of the trenches as well. Again, you were talking about the involvement of engineering and trenchless. Is that one of your goals as being a director on UESI? So, so one of my, yeah, that? one of my goals is, is obviously, you know, bringing more awareness to trenchless. But the other thing is, is that I'm also involved. I'm also a member of the Construction Institute and the Geo Institute of ASC. And I've been for a long time, even before UESI. And I want to see more integration between the three institutes because they all fit hand in hand, right? I mean, so looking at things like maybe some smaller regional seminar conferences, you know, one day things that we could do together with the, with the, with all three institutions. But I really think that, I mean, it's ASCE. I think that, you know, UESI has done a great job as a standalone, but we also need to, to, to partner with a, a geo institute and a construction institute as well to, to really bring bring out the strengths of of the members in, in these various institutes. 
And I see my colleague David was uh, trying to get a question. Yeah, I'm gonna, so sorry for no, being I was gonna, I was gonna ask Sam, because uh, uh, we, we often talk a lot about the direct uh, uh, impact or direct costs of these utility strikes, but maybe you can uh, shed some light on the indirect costs. Like what, what, what is the process that happens after a strike? What are the consequences that we don't hear about, that don't hit the, the headlines? Well, I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, somebody who was seriously injured in a strike, right? A burn victim uh, or, or their families, right? <clears throat> it has a major impact on you. I mean, you're, you're, you're living your life, you're doing your thing, and then boom, you know, there's an explosion and, and usually or hit like that, right? Um, th those, are, those are, you know, how do you quantify something like that, right? And um, I mean, I, I've seen it. I mean, what what happens? And, and unfortunately, you know, what? How much do you? What value do you put on a human life? But unfortunately, the actuaries look at it, and they look at various factors. You know, age and dependence, and you know, earning potential, and all of that in terms of assessing those types of damages in that. But but there's a lot of psychological damages that can occur with utility hits or injuries like that. I mean, just think about if you were a 10-year-old kid uh, in, in, in the neighboring house or in the neighborhood and, and you see this happen. I mean, you don't, you're scared. I mean, this is going to be traumatic. And so I've seen a lot sometimes in these cases, you know, we have to bring in psychologists and that to really help you know, counselors to help not, not just the children, but the people in the neighborhood. And, and so it is, it is something that's, that's really uh, critical and important. I mean, we can quantify, you know, damages, but how do you quantify those other intrinsic factors that can occur? And, and I mean, I could tell you stories uh, of, uh, you know, the, tr the trauma that people have had, you know, I was involved in a case in Wisconsin at a resort and, and it was really sad. I mean, it hit a, hit a line, a propane gas line. And, and, you know, a day later, you know, it seeped through and it blew up an entire uh, uh, cabin. And there was a husband and wife uh, who were visiting from another state. And both of them died and left three orphans who survived. Three kids survived. But they were young. And, and I mean, they were just on vacation. And so, I mean, the, the rest of their life, those three, three young kids, you know, are going to grow up. You know, her growing up without a parent, right? Who often, who often, uh, uh, who takes the responsibility, like the immediate responsibility? Well, I think uh, you know it gets into a lot of litigation issues. It's it's the contractor, you know, ultimately if if they didn't follow proper practices, right? And and that's why we outline good practices for doing any kind of construction. I mean, whether it's uh, pipe bursting or directional drilling or pipe ramming or whatever trenchless method we have out there. We have a lot of documents. Uh, I mean, UESI has manual of practices. NASDT has good practices guidelines. You know, I'm a co-author of the Horizontal Directional Drilling Good Practices Guidelines with uh, Dr. David Bennett. And um, I mean, that document is, is some several states have actually pointed to that document as their standard of care. Right? They've said, hey, if you're drilling, you have to have the standard of care of the HD Good Practices Guidelines because we outline those things that if you follow procedures properly, you're not, the chances of having such injuries like that or, or strikes are, are, are dramatically minimized. Yeah. Sam, I'm going to ask you a question, and I know this is uh, out of left field, but who is your utility infrastructure hero? Who really molded your career or really gave you that push to do what you do? Well, I mean, my, my career is not just utility infrastructure, but I, I would tell you that the guy who I think is the, the top guy in the world in, in utility is uh, Jim Onsbach. I mean, Jim is just that, that, that guy is, I mean, he, he is a wonderful man and he is so brilliant. And we've worked together in, over the years on, on, on uh, claims and things like that in the past. And he just is, uh, I mean, I can't say enough of Jim in terms of what he's done and his impact in the utility industry have been, has been absolutely uh, uh, wonderful in that. I mean, in terms of trenchless, I mean, there's been, you know, a lot of people that, that came, you know, there's a, not a lot of people that have been involved in it because I mean I got involved in it uh, you know tw over 25 years ago right so it's been been a long time but you know back then the people I looked up to were you know Dr. Tom Isley and Dr. Uh, Ray Sterling I mean these were two two icons of the industry that um, you know I always 
looked up to and 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 uh as i was the young guy and but now i'm no longer the young guy anymore and so there's a lot of new people uh, in the industry it's funny because I, I still see dr tom really active and is uh louise actually he's former louisiana tech i believe he's now at purdue but i, I do see he's really active still with all the seminars and everything that's going on and it, it's really great to see that He's still uh, in the industry and, and still trying to educate. Now, this is really going to be out of left field. Uh, are you a, a golfer or a hockey player? A golfer or a hockey player? So I do. Yeah, which one? Do you I do both, but I'm a much better hockey player than I was a golfer, than I am a golfer. But yeah, but uh, yeah, hockey definitely is the, the, the big sport for me. I love hockey. My son plays, I, I love watching him play now, and it, it's great. And uh, your team, your Canadian team, or your your Coyote fan? Well, so my Canadian team would be the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, enjoy the Edmonton Oilers, and my my American team is uh, you know I, I do obviously cheer for the Coyotes, but I'm a Chicago Blackhawks fan. And that's because you're Champagne, Illinois. Fan? No, no. In fact, that was a no. No, just growing up as a as a kid. Uh, I idolized uh, Tony Esposito. He was a goaltender there, and he uh, recently just he just passed uh, just a few months ago. It, uh, and um, I became a goaltender because I just idolized Tony Esposito, and I want. And he was a Chicago Blackhawks. So I was growing up in Southern Ontario, and you know, I was the one kid who was a Chicago Blackhawks fan amongst all these Toronto Maple Leaf fans. No, that's, that's really interesting. In terms of. Uh, other writing, we've talked a little bit about your professional life. We've talked a little bit about your your uh, your hockey interests, but in terms of other things in your life, like do, do you enjoy travel? Or what is that one thing which keeps you going right now? Well, I mean, I enjoy my job. I love my job, right? I, I love uh, imparting the knowledge of of trenchless and and just construction engineering practices to young young people, right? And and what gives me the most satisfaction is when when these these students you know, our former students, they graduate and they go on to, to jobs and careers within our industry. And, and I think that's the most important thing for me in that. And, and what I'm really proud of is I've got quite a few students who got their PhDs under me and are now professors at other universities and they're teaching new people. And so we're just sort of spreading that whole gospel of, of trenchless and underground utilities around and I think that's really uh, I think that's really uh, what, what I enjoy doing that but uh, you know personally I love traveling I've been to 50 something countries and 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 I really love going and, and experiencing different cultures and 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 meeting different people and so I've I've been all over the world and uh, you know uh, uh, really enjoy doing that and as a, as and a whole. if there's a, a one technology, one tool that you think uh, the industry should uh, should be using more. What, what do you think it is? Like oh, one mindset, or like what's what's your tip for the industry? So I think the future is is going to go uh, with um, augmented reality. I think that's for utilities. I think that's what, and and we've played with that. Actually, I had a PhD student who did a thesis related to that, and I think that you know we've got to find ways of digitizing. Are underground, and I envision it that you know you go out to the job site and you you take your phone, and and then you you put it on the ground, and you can you can see visualize where that where those utilities are to really help you. I mean, you've got the paint marks on the ground and all that, but you if you can scan that around, you you'll have a much better uh, situation in terms of um, safety and not hitting these utilities. So I think, and people say, well, my gosh, that's a that's a big task, and that well, you know, I mean. You know, we have Google Earth right now. You can see a lot of stuff. And I think the underground Google Earth is something that I see in the future. And, and um, I mean, North America, obviously, Canada, the U.S., Australia as well, have, have done a pretty good job in terms of you – know, but it was still, you can't trust as-built. You can't trust the marks. You have, to, you have to still do that type of things. But think about other countries. Think about, you know, China. I spend a lot of time in China. Um, uh, Pre-pandemic, I was going to China seven to eight times a year. And there, they have no idea what where their utilities are. Or India, I mean, the two two big countries like that, they have, they have zero idea. And so, uh, they they run into all kinds of excavation issues and, and things like that. But if we have a way of digitizing that the underground, you know, underground mapping, and then tying it to an augmented reality where we can overlay and we can say, oh, well, here's what we see underground. Oh, that would just be a, a game changer in terms of, of 
you know, uh, construction practices and underground. Maybe get the stats of uh, of the next year's dirt report down a bit. So, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. And but but you know the other the other thing that um, you know I, I caution too is that some and and you know here's a scenario, right? A contractor says, "Oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this job," and then there's a you know calls in the one call. They come out there, they they mark the water line and. Or whatever the line, it could water line, gas line, it might not be whatever. Contractors, oh, okay, I'm going to excavate pothole, see, identifies a line, not in conflict, starts drilling, and then hits the line. Because what was identified was the abandoned utility. And we have so much abandoned utilities around that nobody really knows about, right? Oh, they, and, and, and that's what we're paying the consequences of. Well, we're just going to put in a bigger line or a different line, but we'll just abandon that line and we're going to have the other one in there. And so you go down a few years later and a, that core locator comes out and goes, Oh yeah, I found the gas line or I found the, the and I've, I've been involved in several undocumented. Yeah. yeah. Undocumented lines. And so uh, we passed legislation after some incidences here in, in Arizona that said you, you must document, you know, going forward. So it doesn't, it doesn't cover the old stuff. Right. But you have to document the abandoned utilities as well. I saw that from a paper from the APWA on that. Uh, I believe it was uh, one of my colleagues, Al Field, in a paper from APWA yeah, Al- for the upper committee talking about uh, the abandonment of utilities in the right of way in Arizona. So, very interesting read, actually. Oh, absolutely. Very, uh, very happy. Yeah. yeah, and and that's that's because yeah, yeah. of a a situation where you know the gas line was there was an abandoned gas line and, and, and actually I was involved in that particular situation. It was back in uh, 2000, you know, late nineties, 2000, 2001 timeframe. And, you know, the, the result of that was a death. Wow. Sam, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you thought about coming up with a book, uh, lessons learned and guide to uh, utility, uh, utility uh, litigation by Sam Rathman? <laughs> well, it seems like you've been involved in a lot of litigation and a lot of uh, expert witnesses. You know? Maybe you can put out your uh, your guidebook to lessons learned and really try to shake up the industry, saying, "Hey guys, wake well, up!" Well, I mean, you know, I haven't have written a book in it, but we did wrote uh, myself and a, and a lawyer named uh, Jim Prozek. He's quite active in the industry in the utility. He and I actually wrote a journal paper uh, on an ASCE journal paper uh, on in in uh, legal affairs and that talking about underground and the consequences of underground hits. And I think it really, really outlines what can happen with those types of situations. I mean, it's not just a gas and that. I, I mean, I can tell you uh, the, the biggest uh, judgment in, in, in history for underground utility hits was um, a case that I, I, I actually was very early in my career. It was my first case, actually. So it was kind of interesting to get thrown into that. And, you know, now lessons learned going, wow, I had no idea I'd be in put in that but i was um still living up in edmonton and i got called by at&t to to be their testifying expert on a case where uh another utility which was quest which is you know changed names us west and now it's CenturyLink. you know their 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 contractor was installing lines in austin texas they're all telecom lines and they hit the uh, at&t line not once but twice in the subsequent bores and and uh, I was called in there, and I actually testified in trial. This trial lasted a few weeks, and I testified two different times in front of a jury, talking about practices and directional drilling, and and that. And at the end, the jury deliberated, and they and they they ruled in favor of AT and T, the plaintiff who I represented, and and they said, well, the damages to the the telecom line was one point two million dollars. Okay, one point two million dollars. We can figure it out. But the, manages, the, the damages for punitive damages for negligence, which is what I was there to kind of testify on, was $350 million. Wow. wow. So it was – it just rocked. I mean it was the, – the newspaper articles came out and all kinds of things on that. And, of course, you know, I mean I, I, I got paid hourly. I should have got paid on a percentage. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, it got appealed and it, it obviously got lowered. But the point was, is a statement was made there. And where the $350 million came from was this provision called loss of use. 
And so when you hit a telecom line, it's not just, well, it costs this much to repair, to repair it, but what's the loss of use to that line, right? I mean, there's trade day traders, there's all kinds of things that could lose uh, businesses for that. And so it did set a precedence. And, and I remember I would go to these <laughs> CGA and damage prevention conferences and some random people would be giving talks on the AT&T uh, uh, litigation and I'd sit in the, in, in the back watching it and think, you know, hey, you know, I, <laughs> I'd approach the speakers after say, you know, I was actually the testifying expert on that case. They'd be like, oh, but um, it, it really propelled a lot. After, after that, I really got a lot of phone calls on, on helping with uh, HD related litigation on that. Um, but it's pretty simple. It's, it's follow good practices and, and you're, you should be safe in your, in your, in your, your installations. Sam, I'm going to ask you a, a couple of personal questions now, just to really understand, Sam, in all your travels throughout the world, where is that one place you'd want to go back to and really uh, see it again? Wow. I mean, that's a tough question. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite place to, to visit. My wife and I like to go to New Zealand. So we've been there a few times. And in fact, that was one of the places I went to in 2019 before the pandemic. And it was for a, a litigation situation. But but um, do I, a place I want to go back to that I uh, that I've only been to once. Well, I think Croatia is would would come to mind as a place. You know, I really uh, I enjoyed. I went to Croatia before. I'd love to go back again and 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 see uh, more more of it. Um, but you know, uh, Spain, of course, is, yeah. a, is it was always fun to be. I've been to Italy a few times. So, but um, up in Europe. Uh, and I've been I, I've been all over the place, right? And I've spent a lot of time in Australia, New Zealand, as I said, and of course Southeast Asia. I've been all over Southeast Asia. So regarding Southeast Asia, I'm going to ask you a really candid question: Are you a fine dining or street meat type of person? I'm both, you know, and and it depends where you're at. I mean, if you're if you're in if you're in Thailand, yeah, eat street street stuff, right? If you're in China, you're not eating street stuff. So you have to be careful where you're at, but definitely, um, I like to try the local cuisine and, and I don't have any food allergies or anything like that. So it, it makes it easy. I've eaten some pretty interesting things. So, yeah. Sam, is there any project which you're really passionate about right now, which you're working on personally? Uh, it could be a personal project. It could be a, uh, you know, it could be your, uh, your charitable foundation. Like, is there anything that you are really putting your focus in right now? Well, we just, I mean, my focus has been, recently has been on, an, uh, we had an accreditation of the engineering program. So we go through this ABAT accreditation and that just happened last week. So uh, not even a week ago, it, it finishes. And so this is something that's done every six years. And so as the program chair of construction engineering, you know, that's my responsibility to make sure that everything is done on that. So I've been, you know, for the last, uh, I mean, pretty much the last year, been pretty in, in engrossed in that sort of thing and it came down and, and we did really well in, in the whole accreditation so we're going to be celebrating here now I mean uh, on that but that 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 has really engrossed a lot of my time in that uh, recently I've been in the press a lot uh, you might have heard the, the big PG&E announcement um, that because of all the fires are going to spend about 20 billion dollars over the next 10 years on uh, undergrounding those above ground lines and and i've been talking about this for years i mean that that really is something that they you know should be doing and now that they're doing that i, I hope to have some involvement in that project as well i mean i know a lot of all the contractors that typically would be involved in it but that's a really daunting task because uh, today you know or this this year i mean 18 uh, or um uh pg e is going to install 70 miles, right? They Now they want to go up to 1,000 miles a year from 70 miles to do that. And part of that will be horizontal directional drilling. Part of it will be trenching and all that and trying to figure that out. So I will be making a trip to, to PG&E just to talk to them and, and see, you know, and, and, and I have – I, I have a former PhD student that works in the electrical transmission distribution or transmission system there. And, and, Why do you uh, think they, uh, they made that decision? to start the, investing in the barrier infrastructure? You know, they had to because of the fires, right? The forest management is an issue. And, and with climate change and all of that, you're looking at really dry conditions and really hot conditions. And and then these trees have grown and they, they strike these power lines and, and that. I mean, they, there's awful fires that have been going on because of these power lines. 
and, yeah. and and then you look at the East Coast, you know, all the way from Florida up to Washington, D.C., they're doing yeah. similar things, but for different reasons. They have, you know, hurricanes and, and other other weather events that cause problems. And, and, and just look at what happened in, in Dallas, Texas last year, right, where they had the ice storms and, yeah. and you yeah. would have thought that would have knocked everything out. And so undergrounding it is much better. Uh, it's more expensive, no doubt about it. But but there's studies that were that have shown that you have significant maintenance cost savings by being underground than above ground, right? Above ground, you're exposed to the to the atmosphere and all that. So I think that's something I'd, I'd really like to get my hands on and, and really be able to make an impact on on finding better ways to to do that. Because there are there are things that we have to look at from an engineering perspective. You know, drilling fluids we're using thermal grout because we have to be able to you know wick away the ener- the the power in those lines and cool them and not have them constricted and get hot and all that. So it, it's exciting times. I mean, I think the the with with the, that type of pro- projects like that, I mean, twenty billion dollars over ten years is a lot of money on one project, right? And, but it'll it'll save lives. I mean, there, there's a lot of lives that have been lost to these fires, and a lot of towns have been wiped out. What are going to be? Do you think the the biggest challenges in bearing the in bearing the power lines? So the the biggest challenges is actually you know I think it's the pre planning that they have to look at too right and because the the terrains are different and you have to you have to isolate and say you know do we have cleared right away are the right of ways not cleared you know what what can we do you know and if they're not cleared then obviously directional drilling is a is a preference if they're cleared right aways then some sort of trenching or open cut would be more economically or more feasible in terms of that but then also looking at you know the whole engineering aspect of it right you've got to got to work with the industry really carefully and closely in terms of developing proper grouts thermal grouts the the construction processes with trenchless to be able to do that so i think those will be the challenges but i think actually there are things that we're going to be able to do it's not not an issue of of being able to do them there's a, there's a lot of good smart minds out there that have been involved in various projects. I mean, we've done undergrounding before, but never to the magnitude never that did, is being proposed by PG&E. Yeah, Sam, I'm going to ask you just one question: the future. What do you see in the future of the technology, and where do you see yourself in that future? Well, you know, I've been saying this for the last 15 years. I, I think that we have to find see ahead technology. For those drills and and i think whoever can invent that way of being able to have obstacle detection on the end of their drill they're they're gonna they're gonna be uh, a very rich because i do believe that if if there's some sort of device you put at the end of your drill bit that as you're drilling can tell you if there's a line in front of you to to prevent you from hitting that line I think it'll be like the seatbelt, right? You're going to have to have it on every project, yeah. and, and regardless, I think it'll be mandated by the government because of the consequences. I mean, you want to, you know, a fifty million dollar lawsuit, or you know, or you know, have, have this ten thousand dollars to buy that. And I know yeah. there's <laughs> groups in Europe that have been working on it, and and we we saw I've seen a prototype and that, but it's still not quite there. And and I mean, it's but but I mean, we we can send people to the moon, right? And we're still trying to figure out how to do see ahead technology, but that's something I think, uh, you know, from a research perspective, and, and I know a lot of groups have been, you know, the gas technology Institute and, and other groups have been really trying to work on finding ways to do that. And they have been doing that for more than a decade, but we just haven't been able to do that yet. But with modern technologies and things like that, maybe we'll, uh, you know, eventually be able to, to, to find something like that, that that's feasible and commercial and, be able to work and that. but you know where i, where I see myself and you know continuing to be a proponent of underground utilities and and you know the number one thing in anything that we do is public safety right that's it right no matter what construction project you're doing whether you're building a, a train or you're doing a any kind of uh, high rise or anything like that public safety is paramount and, and I, I'm an advocate for that. And I think that it's really important that we as an industry continue to do things properly and always think about public safety and, and, and that we don't want some innocent lives lost or, or, or injuries because of uh, some poor decision making that, that we made in our industry. And so I think doing that is, is really, really important. I think. Sam, I'm going to ask you uh, 
one last question this with hindsight being 2020 would you have taken the career path you have right now or would you have gone to the consulting world so my original plan was to go to the consulting world i was working for a consultant in canada before uh, shortly before i went to do my masters and the plan was to do my masters and then go back to canada and and do the consulting and then i, I was just convinced uh, to my supervisor said why don't you stay and do a phd and i said yeah, I'm having a good time. I might as well. And because uh, that wasn't in my cards, I never thought I would ever do a PhD and be a professor and, and, and all of that. And um, but uh, no, absolutely. I love what I do because I also consult as well. So I have the best of both worlds. And in, 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 I mean, I love my job in, in what I do. I love being here at Arizona State and meeting people. And, you know, I mean, you think about it, I have the opportunity to to work on interesting projects, teach teach young kids and and, and or young 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 men and women and, and and I also get the opportunity to travel you know to different places and, and and go to conferences and things like that that I make that decision of whether I go or not right it's not made by the university or my company right and with the consulting I think it's uh, uh, much more challenging in terms of that and it's really competitive being in the consulting realm um, academia is competitive too but if you you know you can show that you do a good job then you'll be successful and what it is and that. And, you know, in March, I, I, I became a, a endowed chair. So I'm the, the uh, Beavers Ames chair of, in heavy construction. And so the Beavers Construction Organization is a top organization for heavy construction here here in, in the U.S. And and uh, so that's all the big contractors that you, you can name are probably members of, of the Beavers. And so what this platform allows me to, to really do even more to go out and promote heavy infrastructure, which includes utilities and, and that. Um, you know, I've got a, a, a TV show that we filmed that's coming out pretty soon uh, called, I don't know if you knew about that, but I, I filmed a, a TV show that's going to come out national. It's called uh, Viewpoint, and it's hosted by Dennis Quaid, the actor. And uh, we filmed it in uh, early September. And uh, that the, the topic is opportunities in America's infrastructure. So that so be watching for that. That's going to be prime time uh, coming out. And I'm, you didn't call me to get interviewed, I, I, Sam. I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> it's a. It's, Am I not? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be exciting. So I'm I'm really um, excited okay. about it. You know, they're in production right now, so they're putting it together and then uh, it'll go to distribution and eventually it'll, it'll be out. I think I expect it's going to launch in, uh, in uh, early 2022 and that, but it'll be, it'll be good. I mean, we're just trying to spread the word and, and, and get the importance of heavy infrastructure. And, and that includes, as I say, utilities. It's not just roads and bridges and dams and rail and all of that kind of stuff. So. No, that's, that's really incredible. And I've, I look at the hour which is just passing. It really went by in a in a flash right now, and I you know there's, we've talked about so much and we've really you know gone through so many gamuts and really we've only hit the tip of the iceberg with you. So I would like to maybe follow up in a couple months, follow up in a year, see how you're doing, see where you are, and see if you've achieved that or or found that uh, that uh, that that augmented reality vision <laughs> person to actually work with and get that going but uh, really from my point of view i see that all of the different experts and all the different people and all the different people i've met along the road have all combined to build this community of utility infrastructure and it's people like yourself like jim Montbach, like lawrence arcand in, in canada all these different people uh, like phil meese all these different people really contribute and give up their time to build and i know one of the main goals which i've had over the last few years is really to contribute to the industry and really be a part of the community. And Sam, I know that uh, we've talked quite often and I've, I've tried to rope you into a few conferences to come speak for me at a few of my UESI conferences in Canada. And I know I've called you a few times and it, it's been it's been tough going trying to get you, but when I have gone to different conferences and seen you speak, it has really been eye-opening in terms of your vision of what's going on and the topics which you've uh, you've been discussing. So really, uh, you know, we're, we're at our time right now. And I really want to say, Sam, I do appreciate you being our first guest. Uh, one of the most important people in the industry, in my opinion. Oh, nice. you know, 
well, you know, we're, we're giving you the honor of being the first, and we really, we really want to convey that we want to talk to you. We want to have that open dialogue with you and really understand what's going on. So if you ever have anything that you really think is podcast-worthy, I want you to give me a call, and I'll put you right on again. <laughs> Sam, uh, for our listeners, what's, uh, what's the best way to reach you and ask you a question? Probably the best way is to, to send me an email, which is my last name, uh, ariaratnam at asu.edu. Yeah, I'll uh, put that yeah, in the comments. More than happy if people have questions yeah. and that or, or want to talk or, or have some comments. I'd, I'd love to hear from them. I always like uh, uh, talking to various people. Yeah, giving them advice. <laughs> Do you have any conferences you're speaking at coming up right now, Sam, or anything else? Um, any events you're going to be at? Yeah, I've got um, coming up here in, in a couple of weeks. The, I'm in the National Academy of Construction here in the U.S., and so we have our National Academy meeting uh, in Colorado Springs coming up, and then the Distribution Contractors Association. We have um, uh, 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 a fall meeting in, in, in Denver, and then I'm also going to be speaking at the at the Rocky Mountain uh, Trenchless uh, um chapters uh conference that's in i think in two weeks from now in colorado as well so i'll hit all, all of those at the same time uh i'm planning to be in dubai in december for the trenches middle east conference so i love that conference and it uh, looks like dubai pretty uh, pretty open to, to travel and without quarantine and so that will be my first international trip since uh, november of 2019 where i was in wuhan china so <laughs> during that time I can tell you one thing, Dubai is a great place. Dubai now accepts Israelis as well. <laughs> so yeah. we, we might be turning yeah. up as well. So. Yeah, Dubai is great. That Abraham show was a really good show, right? That tre- the tre- yeah. Trenches yeah. Middle East. I mean, it got moved from the original dates and stuff like that. But I would definitely, um, yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of where, where I'm going. But I've been traveling a lot right now. I mean, I was at the, the big utility expo last week. There was, there was 19,000 people or so there. I, I, I gave uh, three different... Uh, 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 educational sessions there on horizontal directional drilling, which was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, it looks like things are things are back. I mean, this is the same group that the Association of, of Equipment Manufacturers that puts on the big Con Expo show, which is like the biggest show. And this is kind of a, another version of it, but just strictly for utilities. That's put on every two years and that. So, but yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm not stopping. I'm. I'm traveling as much as I can to, to different events and that. And, and um, domestically, I'm just waiting for the international to, to open up so we can do more of that. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Sam, thank you so much. Any, uh, yeah, okay. we appreciate your time, Sam. We're going to conclude our podcast right now. If you'll just stay with us uh, right after we're done. All right. So thank you very much, everyone. I do appreciate everyone tuning into the first inaugural uh, 4M candid candid conversations with utility leaders. So really, uh, appreciate your time and really have a great evening or day and really keep it safe. Most important thing: make sure what you're doing is safe and always think of the consequences ahead and try to mitigate before. So thank you, everyone. See you next episode. See you next episode. Thank you.